morning, Three Rivers Church. Pray with me. Father, I thank you so very much for this day and thank you for your grace. Um, Thank you for the powerful gospel whereby we have been taken from the domain of darkness, the kingdom of darkness, and transferred to the kingdom of the Son. And so, Lord, we thank you for that today. And we pray, Holy Spirit, you would rule our time, that you would rule over the atmosphere in this room, that you would set it, that you would mark it as yours. And that there would be no influence or effects of the evil one. We trust you for that and we beg you for that. And we need you to make that happen this morning. Make us to see, understand and know for your glory and our joy we pray. Amen. Acts 25, 1 to 12. It feels like it's been forever since I have been in front of you to open the word. And uh, it maybe has been. I think it's been close to four weeks. And so um, I'm delighted to be back in front of um, my family with the word open. Acts 25, 1 to 12. I'm going to put a banner over this passage, a thesis, I guess you could say, uh, to try to capture the point of the passage. It would be waiting, obeying, and trusting God's providence. Waiting, obeying, and trusting God's providence. The notes are available for you at MitchJolly.com. Uh, you can go there and check out the manuscript and uh, it's there for you to be able to follow along. Or as you are listening later online, you can go back and see notes as well. The Bible talks about our salvation in these kinds of terms. I have been saved. We title that big fancy word here, justified. That is God has taken my sin, put it on Christ, and put Christ's righteousness on me. The substitution work of Jesus on the cross. So I have been saved. I am being saved. Big fancy word, sanctified. That is, Jesus is cleaning me up. He is making me right as He counts me is right. And then I will be saved, glorified. That is, Jesus will complete my salvation. He will make me into perfection. I have been saved, I'm being saved, and I will be saved. Now, if we're in Christ, we're in that I am being saved stage. The I am being saved state we find ourselves in, by God's grace, is a very hard state. This stage is hard because the kingdom of God currently overlaps the kingdom of the world for an appointed time. There is an already not yet reality to the kingdom of God. Jesus has come, He has died, He has risen, He has ascended, and He has begun to take back what was robbed in Genesis 3. And so the kingdom of God has come. The supernatural work of God reclaiming all that is His is in effect, but it is also in effect against the kingdom of darkness. And these overlapping kingdoms will be a reality for an appointed time. So there is conflict between the two within us. And if you are a follower of Jesus, you know this conflict, you feel it, you fight it, you wage the war, but it is also a conflict without In the world around us, in relationships, in opposing forces controlled by each, whether it be whatever domain you work in. No doubt the world system is coming to an end. It is coming to an end. 
And the Bible assures us that the kingdom of God will eventually rule and reign among all nations. Jesus will gloriously wrap it all up, recreate a new heaven and a new earth, and there we will dwell with Him forever. No doubt the world system is coming to an end. But we are in the conflict now that we are fighting. We are being saved. We're fighting to advance the kingdom of God against the last gasps of the kingdom of darkness. Just like David was anointed king and had to suffer at the hands of Saul until the appointed day of ascending to the throne, Jesus likewise had to suffer until the appointed day of His resurrection and ascension. This is what Jesus meant in Luke 24, 25-26 when He said, O foolish one, slow of heart and slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into His glory? That's what Jesus is talking about. As David had to suffer... As he was anointed king, but he suffered under the rule of Saul until the appointed death of Saul, at which time he ascended to the throne. Jesus says, did you not know by reading the Old Testament that this is how it had to be? Likewise, right? Now, follow me here. Likewise, we too get the honor of suffering with and being like Jesus. This is, this is what it means to be like Jesus. Is This is the pattern God has given us from Genesis all the way to Revelation that Adam and Eve suffered and had to grow into it, right? Noah had to suffer and grow into it. Abraham suffered, grew into it. Isaac suffered, grew into it. Jacob suffered, grew into it. Judah suffered, grew into it, right? You tracking? You following? Just like that, we come in the line of the kingdom of God under the banner of Jesus Christ and we get the honor of being like all those of faith who've come before us. And as the King Himself, Jesus, who suffered and then entered His glory. We're no different. And this isn't bad. This is good. Because it's God who's ruling the I am being saved stage of our salvation. And we get to walk with Jesus in this stage until we either pass from life to life or until the return of the king and the full establishment of his kingdom. So living the Christian life requires waiting on the Lord. Just read the Psalms and count how many times you read that phrase. Wait on the Lord, wait on the Lord, wait on the Lord, wait on the Lord. And by the way, that's a value of God's kingdom that is in complete conflict with the domain of darkness, isn't it? Everything in darkness says, now, 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 yesterday, yesterday, yesterday. And God says, wait. Trust me. Obedience, right? Do what Jesus says. We, we quote the wages of sin is death all the time, but we don't believe it. No, no, no. Sin's okay, because we all got it. So as long as it's okay with you, it's okay with me. We don't have to deal with it, right? We don't really believe sin will kill us. So, waiting on the Lord, obedience, and then a strong trust in the good providence of God. Weave all these together. And that's the Christian life. You say, what in the world does that have to do with Acts 25, 1-12? Well, everything. Because this is exactly where Paul finds himself in our passage for the day. Paul is being saved. Again, I've tried to draw the point to us as we've studied through Acts. Paul's no hero. Paul's, the, the only hero of the book of Acts is Jesus. 
Paul's just one person in a line of people in salvation history that God chose as an instrument of His grace to the nations. And he comes in the line. And by the way, he's no better than Adoniram Judson, William Carey, George Mueller. He's just one. And we got record of him. Christian history is littered with great saints who followed Jesus, waited, obeyed, and trusted God's good providence. We just get to read about one of them in Acts, Paul, but the hero is Jesus, not Paul. This is where Paul finds himself. You read the passage, it's kind of benign. He's once again in prison, once again making his case. Alright, next verse, right? But God inspired Acts 25, 1-12, and therein is something for us to glean. And what we see in this passage is Paul just, he's being saved. Just like you and me. God has rescued him. Acts 9, right? He knocked him off his horse. Revealed who he was and took him from darkness and transferred him to light. Saved him. Set him out on a life mission. And Paul's work, we get to read about. Paul's just being saved like us. He's waiting on the Lord. Where else is he going to (laughs) go? Right? He's in prison. He's seeking to obey the gospel. What else does he have to do? Might as well. May die for it anyway. Better preach to everybody. And he's trusting in the good providence of God. Because for Paul here, God has graciously removed all other options. So we see Paul in this place of waiting on the Lord. Seeking to obey the gospel and trusting God's good providence. Acts 25, 1-12. Now... Three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. Now, if you're looking at a map, you know where Caesarea's at and where Jerusalem's at. You've heard me say this before. Geographically, like, that's not up, Hoss. That's down. Because Jerusalem's south. But when he says up in the Bible, referring to going to Jerusalem, is because Jerusalem sets on a mountain. And they always refer to Jerusalem as going up to. So when Caesarea is in the north and he's going up to Jerusalem, it's not because they're geographically challenged. It's a statement of ascending up the mountain to where Jerusalem sits. So he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul. Now remember, Paul's in prison in Caesarea, right? Um, So Festus is going to Jerusalem because he's... Recently been appointed. And by the way, all the good information we have on Festus, he was a pretty good leader. Did a really nice job. He just died really early of a disease. So he didn't last long, but he did a pretty decent job. We're going to see that here in this text. So he's going down to meet the people that he's now entrusted to lead. And they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul, that he summon him to Jerusalem. And keep in mind, it's typical for Roman governors to give favors to the people that they're ruling over to quell rebellion. Right? Pilate, right? Wanted to do a favor at this season, so keep the Jews quiet, right? So I'll give you a prisoner. Take Jesus. No, we want this guy, right? So this is kind of their pattern. He wants to do a favor. Because they were planning, notice this, they were planning to ambush, or planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me. And if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. 
After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the Jews, or I'm sorry, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar, have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? Remember, he's already rejected this. Bring him, bring him to Jerusalem. No, no, no. Just come to Caesarea. So he's asking Paul, do you want to go to Jerusalem and be tried on these charges? But Paul said, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews, I've done no wrong, as you yourselves know very well. If then I'm a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, do not seek to escape death. But if there's nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered to Caesar, you have appealed. Caesar, you shall go. Quick summary here. Paul's been confined. And you've got to keep in mind, he's been in prison two years. On these trumped up charges. Two years. Not two weeks. Not two months. Two years. That's a lot of days in prison on false charges. Paul's been in prison Two years. Roughly A.D. 57 to A.D. 59. This narrative starts in Acts 21-27 and carries us up through Acts 25-12. Two years. Paul's been in prison on trumped up charges. Paul has faithfully submitted to the Jewish and Roman authorities as he would teach in Romans 13, right? He tells us in Romans 13, Obey the authorities God has established over you because God has established them. Therefore, obey them. Because they're God's ministers of justice to do right, to punish those who do wrong, and to reward those who do right. So what's Paul doing? He's obeying what he knows to be true. I submit to the authority God has placed over me. (laughs) My intent is not to comment on these summaries, but that one's just rich. I'll get, just hang tight with me. Paul has faithfully preached the gospel to governors, to guards, and fellow prisoners. You'll read the account. Paul has preached faithfully Jesus Christ and Him crucified to everybody he's come in contact with. Because again, what else is he going to do, right? Paul is very aware. He knows his Roman government. And I put in parenthesis here, he's socially politically and governmentally astute and aware. He's done his homework. He knows what's in authority over him and he knows how to work within it. This is this, I, got a, I got a comment here. Do you know how to work within the system God has set up over you by people who aren't Christians? Are you aware it's a system God set over you? Do you act like it is? Paul's very aware of this. And Paul knows this and he uses it to his advantage in the advancement of the gospel as he appeals to Caesar. We also know here that Paul is very clearly aware of God's will from Acts 23, 11, Because you remember what the Lord said to him? Paul, do not be afraid. Because you must testify about me in Rome. But I'm stuck in a prison in Caesarea. Two years. 
Paul knows the Lord's will and he acts wisely about it, looking for the opportunity according to the Lord's word. I'm going to say more about that here in just a moment. Paul never forces their hand. Never forces their hand. He uses the system and opportunity. Paul doesn't run screaming through the prison and to everybody who comes to see him that Jesus wants him in Rome, so let him out. Paul waits. I mean, two years. We think it's rough if we have to wait two weeks on an answer of something. Two years. He waits. He simply obeys all the opportunities. He hears the Lord and obeys Him. That's what we call discipleship at Three Rivers. He waits. He obeys. And he trusts God's providential timing. How in the world does Paul wait two years falsely in prison? I'm screaming at every Tom, Dick, and Harry that will listen to my case. You understand what I'm saying? You probably would be too. I'm telling every inmate, I don't belong here. Get me out. Now Paul, he's waiting. He's obeying. He's preaching the gospel there. And he's trusting God's providential timing. How in the world does he wait, obey, and trust like this? The text is pretty straightforward. There's not a lot of hidden gems of expositional genius here to pull out of the narrative. Paul simply in prison waiting, obeying, and trusting God's providence. I want to make five observations that we're going to spend time applying here about Paul's situation. And we're going to learn how to do those five things. We're going to learn to imitate them. I've learned a couple of things in the few years I've been a follower of Jesus. That God gives us testimonies of His grace to know Him but also to imitate. What did Paul say? Imitate me as I imitate Jesus. Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Jesus. In other words, Paul's imitating Jesus and he issues the invitation to others, do what I'm doing. Follow my example. Just a side note, that's not in your notes. Are you following Jesus in such a way you can look at those that you're bringing along and say, do what I'm doing? Do you have somebody you read? And I'm talking dead people. There's not too many live people right now. Some worth imitating. There's some dead people worth reading their lives and imitating their example. We need to find some of those. I'm going to introduce you to a few this morning. Because we need to look at their life and imitate. Paul has been given to us in the text by the inspiration of the Spirit of God to look at his situation and understand the purposes of God and imitate how he's living. Because listen, we're in the same place Paul was at. We might not be in prison, but on the scale of salvation history, the kingdom is coming. Jesus is still saving you and me, just like he was saving Paul. And we can imitate his example. We can imitate his example. of Waiting, obeying, and trusting the Lord. So I want to give you these five observations that aren't explicitly stated in the text. You're not going to find like chapter 25 verse 3 and what I'm going to give you. These are observations that I have pulled out of the text of Paul's imprisonment and this capstone event of his imprisonment. They're gleanings from observing Paul's life in prison and his preaching while in prison. So let me give them to you and we're going to unpack how we can imitate them. 
First, it's pretty clear here. Paul knows God. He knows His purposes. And he believes God is actively at work. Number two, it's clear Paul knows God's Word. Third, it's clear Paul's faith is strong. Fourth, Paul's being patient. And fifth, Paul knows the Lord's leading voice. So how can we grow in that kind of waiting, obeying, and trusting? How in the world can we do that? I want to take those five observations and I want to make five keys... There are more. These are five that came to my mind. As God gives you more from the text, you take them and run with them. But I want to give you five keys to wisely waiting, obeying, and trusting God's providence. As we live in this time of God's kingdom confronting the kingdom of darkness and our role in engaging domains of society and making disciples. Five keys to wisely waiting, obeying, and trusting God's providence. For most of us, we're not going to have to do this in the context of prison, are we? We get to do this from a position of luxury. So we get to take these keys and we get to do something with them today. I want you to be aware there's redundancies built into these keys. And that's on purpose. Because as a former educator, redundancy or right, you know, saying it again is key to learning. So there's some redundancies built in here. If you're like, hey, you said that with different words. You got it. And you probably won't forget it. So there are redundancies built into these keys, and that's on purpose. Number one, the Rivers Church. Listen, we're engaged in taking the gospel to the nations. You know this. This is key to who we are as a church. We believe that all of you are called to engage domains of society. That's a strategic key, practically, financially, to completing the Great Commission. Okay, So it is all of our jobs to obey the Great Commission. We do that by engaging domains of society. And in so doing, we need to learn to wait, obey, and trust God's providence. Because if you are engaging, if you are engaging darkness, it's going to be difficult. And these things can help us. Number one, we need to actively know God and His purposes and believe, believe God is working all things for your good and His glory. You need to actively know God and His purposes and believe God is working all things for your good and for His glory. Romans 8.28 and the rest of the chapter of Romans 8. is glorious. And that's another sermon. But we know that in all things God works together for good for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. Then he goes on to quote this glorious reality of God's election, justification, His sanctification, His glorification, and all in the context of quoting Psalm 44 and God leading them like lambs to slaughter for good purposes. Now, I'm not going to preach on Romans 8, 28 through the end of the chapter, but you go back and read it. Paul's living his life from the context of understanding, knowing God and His purposes and believing God is working for His good and His glory at the same time. Which allows him to patiently be falsely imprisoned. Listen, Paul's read Genesis. He understands he's no different than old Joseph. Right? Right? Falsely imprisoned and accused. 
patiently waiting. And Paul's, I'm, I'm, no, I'm no different. I'm, I know my God and I know how He operates and I know His purposes so I can sit here and trust that Festus, Agrippa, and all of them are under His sovereign rule because He holds kings' hearts in His hands and He turns them wherever He will. That's in the Proverbs. You read that? Paul is clearly aware of God and His purposes and he believes that God's working all things for His good and for God's glory. Listen, Three Rivers Church, this is elementary but absolutely essential. You need to know God. You need to know His character. You need to know His attributes. And you need to know all the applications that come from those. And you can only do that yourself. I can't do that for you. I can only exhort you to it. He's knowable. One of God's greatest attributes is He's communicable. That is, He communicates to us. He makes Himself known. He reveals Himself so we can know Him. The greatest pursuit of your life is to know God and who He is and how He works toward His people. Paul knows God's working for His good so he doesn't have to fret. So if they take his head, it's good. The act may have been done from evil intent, but he knows Genesis 50-20 that was spoken from the very difficult situation that Joseph found himself in. You meant evil against me and God meant it for good. you got to wrestle with that. Paul has wrestled with it, and he's sitting in prison going, you may mean evil, but God means your evil to me to be to my good in spite of you. So I can wait. That's That'll save your life, by the way. That'll save your sanity. So three words, I want to invite you to know God. I want you to know His ends. Know what He's working toward. Because if you're in Christ, you are a loved and blessed vehicle of those ends in your life mission of engaging domains for the glory of Jesus and the advancement of His kingdom. How can we know God? I'm going to share that in key number two here in just a moment. Know God. Know His ends. And work hard. Do everything within your ability that is God-honoring And refuse to fret and worry. Trust God's providential hand. (laughs) Listen, we fret and worry because we don't know God. Fret and worry is a direct result of really not knowing God. Because if you know Him, there's no reason to fret or worry. Because I know He's working for my good and His glory. He's able to take the worst situation and turn it for my good. Because that's what He does. So work hard. Do everything within your ability that is God-honoring and refuse to fret and worry. Trusting in God's good providential hand is not a reason to be lazy. Or to be passive, men. It is all the more reason to work your rear end into the ground. And trust God to cause you to mount up with wings like eagles. To run and not be weary. To walk and not faint. Because that's what He does. Does that make sense? There's a generation of people being raised that are lazy. Have no work ethic. 
They think if they've worked 40 hours, they've done their job, and it's time to go recreate for a while. No. A man's job is never done. That's not an excuse to not Sabbath. We are to stop because God tells us to. Sabbath requires surrender. That's built in. Because if we work until everything's done, we're never going to stop because nothing's ever going to be done. Because we're living in the overlap of the kingdom of God in this cursed world that always needs work. But we need to be workers. We need to work hard. But in our hard work, we don't do it out of fretting. We do it out of delight in God and His purposes. Trusting He's working even when I'm not. I don't. I, I put a really long passage here from John Calvin on this statement of really chapter 25 verse 1 through 5 and I really don't have time to read it because it's super long and it's old English and um, you may get lost in it but I want to give you the gist of it very quickly Um, (laughs) there's no reason under God's green earth Festus should not do what they ask He's trying to win their favor. But he doesn't do what they ask. Why? When he wanted to do them a favor, they asked for a favor, he doesn't grant it. Why in the world do you think that is? Because God rules Festus. Even though Festus doesn't know him. That's awesome. So whatever happened this week to you at the hands of people, whether believers or not, do you believe God's in charge of them? You need to because your Bible says He is. Meaning He's working for my good in spite of everybody else. That's the gist of Calvin's 10 minute quote. (laughs) But God was working in Festus to preserve Paul because God intended Paul to preach in Rome. And it wasn't time for Paul to go just yet. Number two. Three Rivers Church, I want you to know and delight in the testimonies of God. Know and delight in the testimonies of God. This is how you get to know God. Remember I told you I would tell you, number two, how to know God? This is how you get to know God. Know and delight in the testimonies of God. There are a few lessons, lots of lessons, and I hope we need to get together and we're going to get our, our stuff together and get a time for us to stand in front of you and share with you what God is doing and how he's converging our work in A and our people group with the work in India because he is. He's doing that. You're not smart enough to make that happen. I don't know if you noticed last week, but Lars made mention of a high school for people from our country and our people group in the country we just came out of. Weaving together. God doing that. That's just how Father works, right? So lessons kept surfacing for me. One lesson is that Scripture really is sufficient to reveal God, His will, His character, and His glory. And as we sat in front of brand new believers wrestling in coming out of Islam and Buddhism and Hinduism into the faith, it's crazy how you could say, well, 1 Corinthians 7 answers that question. Here, read it and do it. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Okay. It's crazy. It's crazy. The Holy Spirit gives us passages. 
And he gave us passages that address their situation as new followers of Jesus in a context not Christian and what they are to do. Scripture alone really is sufficient. (laughs) Do you believe that? It really is. We can't afford to not know Scripture. 27 times alone in the Psalms, the writer speaks of God's testimonies. Now, you ready for this? 23 of those 27 times are in Psalm 119 alone. Psalm 119 is all about God's Word. Psalm 119 is broken down into 22 sections, each each section uh, representing a letter in the Hebrew alphabet, and each section has eight verses in the section. And you don't see this in English because it doesn't come straight over from Hebrew into English, but each letter at the beginning of each verse in each section of Psalm 119 begins with that letter of the Hebrew alphabet, which is why when you look at Psalm 119, it starts with Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Dalet, Hey, and Vav, and Zion, Haten, Taten, Yod, and Kaf, Lame. See, it's memorizing that. So anyway, so I can sing, I can sing the alphabet. It's how you remember it. Learned that in graduate school. So each section begins with that letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And what's interesting here is 23 of those 27 references to the testimonies of God take place in the psalm that is all about God's Word. It's all about the Word of God. And God's Word gives voice to the testimonies of God, which are, you know what the testimonies are, here it is, which are the record of His acts in salvation history with and in His people. The testimonies of God are, are the ways God has acted in salvation history with and in His people. And Psalm 119 gives us this great teaching about the testimonies of God that are revealed in the Word of God. I gave you a sampling here. Psalm 119, 14. In the way of your testimonies I delight as, as much as in all riches. I delight in your testimonies, the stories of your work and your people. More than I do in money. Psalm 119, 24. Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. They teach me what to do. Psalm 119, 31. I cling to your testimonies, O Lord. Let me not be put to shame. How am I not put to shame? By clinging to your testimonies. How you've worked in your people. I imitate their actions. Trust you to work in me like you worked in them. And by that I will not be put to shame. Psalm 119.36 Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. It's better for you. Because God has to do this, which is why the psalmist is saying, Lord, incline. Make my heart want your testimonies and not gain. Because obviously his testimonies are better than gain. In other words, know God's word and specifically how God has worked in his people because that is how he is at work in us right now. You hear me refer to this often as the manual. That's why. It really is the manual on what to do. If it's not addressed specifically, it will be addressed in principle. Therefore, obey that principle and God is at work in you just like He was in the people in the Scriptures. 
Number three, strengthen your faith. Strengthen your faith. How do we do that? I'm going to let Mueller tell you. I'm actually going to read this one. Because it's gold. You guys have been around here long enough. You know Mueller is my hero. And I put a link here. I actually put a hyperlink. Aren't you impressed I can do that? There's a hyperlink to a free document of his biography, his autobiography. So it's free. You can link to it and read it. And I want to give you, I want to give you George Mueller's counsel on how to strengthen. I hold on to this. I read this almost as much as I do. I know I'm going to get criticized, but I read Mueller sometimes as much as I read my Bible because this cat lived it and I want to be like him. I'm just going to let Mueller tell you. You ready? Let not Satan deceive you. Remember, the point is strengthen your faith. Strengthen your faith. Ready? Let not Satan deceive you in making you think that you could not have the same faith, but that it is only for persons who are situated as I am. Remember, he provided orphan housing for over 10,000 orphans in Great Britain when they put children over eight years of age in prison if they were orphans. He pastored a church, took no money from the church, not because he didn't deserve the money, but because he wanted to prove to his people that God was faithful and answered prayer because he was harassed in his soul that they didn't trust God. So he lived his life in a way that God would prove himself faithful so that the people would not be harassed in spirit and trust God the way he did. Crazy. This is crazy. So you don't let Satan deceive you into thinking that you can't have the same faith as I have because I'm situated like I am. When I lose such a thing as a key, I ask the Lord to direct me to it. Isn't that awesome? Just simple. And I look for an answer to my prayer. I'm glad he loses keys too. When a person with whom I have made an appointment does not come according to the fixed time. That stresses me as well. And I begin to be inconvenienced by it. I ask the Lord to be pleased to hasten him to me and I look for an answer. When I do not understand a passage of the word of God, I lift up my heart to the Lord that he would be pleased by his Holy Spirit to instruct me. And I expect to be taught, though I do not fix the time when and the manner how it should be. When I'm going to minister in the Word, I seek help from the Lord. And while I, in the consciousness of natural inability, as well as utter unworthiness, begin this His service, I am not cast down, but of good cheer, because I look for His assistance and that, and believe that He, for His dear Son's sake, will help me. It's awesome. Childlike trust in Jesus. And thus in... Other of my temporal and spiritual concerns, I pray to the Lord and expect an answer to my request. And may not you do the same, dear believing reader? Oh, I beseech you, do not think me an extraordinary believer having privileges above other of God's dear children, which they cannot have. Nor look on my way of acting as something that would not do for other believers. Mark but trial. Do but stand still in the hour of trial and you will see the help of God if you trust in Him. But there is so often a forsaking of the ways of the Lord in the hour of trial. And thus the food of faith, the means whereby our faith may be increased is lost. This leads me to the following important point. And he gives uh, 
four things in his point. I love that Mueller is wordy because I am too. God can use wordy people. So here's how he says to strengthen your faith. The careful reading of God's word combined with meditation on it. Self-explanatory. Secondly, as with reference to the growth of every grace of the Spirit, it is of the utmost importance that we seek to maintain an upright heart and good conscience. Be holy, keep your conscience clean. This is how you strengthen your faith, remember. Read the Word, meditate on it. Be holy, keep your conscience clean. Third, we should not shrink. This is where it gets hard. We should not shrink from opportunities where our faith may be tried. And therefore, through the trial, be strengthened. Don't shrink from hard things. And then fourth and finally, we let God work for us. When the hour of trial, the trial of our faith comes, and we do not work a deliverance of our own. Do not deliver yourself. Well, that's not in the Declaration of Independence. I can't do that. We don't do that, do we? We're taught to deliver ourselves because we can. And Mueller said, if your faith's going to grow, you cannot deliver yourself. You entrust yourself to the Lord and you wait for Him. And exactly what Paul's doing, he's not running screaming through the jail, get me out of here, Jesus wants me in Rome. He submits to the authorities, preaches the gospel, he trusts God to work in the hearts of kings. That's biblical faith. It's a mistake to hurry or grow impatient with God. It took him 2,000 years to fulfill his promise to Abraham in the birth of Jesus. It took him 80 years to prepare Moses for his life work. (laughs) Remember, Moses was 80 when he went to Pharaoh, let my people go. In America, we quit at 65 Moses is 80 going, "Uh uh-uh, let my people go. It takes him about 25 years to make a mature human being. This is John Stott. So if we have to make a decision by a certain deadline, we must make it. But if not, and the way forward is still uncertain, it is wise to wait. I think God says to us what he said to Joseph and Mary when sending them to Egypt with the child Jesus, Matthew 2, 13. Stay there until I tell you. Oh, by the way, um, that's number four. I totally didn't... uh, Four was exercise patience. I jumped right over the point. That's exercise patience. And patience is freely given as a fruit of the Spirit, by the way. If you're in Christ, you have patience. It's not an issue of, Lord, give me patience. If you have the Holy Spirit and you're in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit. He's given you patience. It's a matter of exercising patience. Like exercising muscles. Patience grows as you practice that. Waiting. Wait on the Lord. Five and finally... Grow in the discerning, leading, speaking voice of God. So we need to grow in discerning, put that word there on purpose, the leading, speaking voice of God. We're a naturalistic people who are uncomfortable with things not quite quantifiable. So we say things, even in our Christian subculture, and we mean well by saying things like this. I've said this, I say it often because I often overreact to bad theology But because we want things quantifiable, we'll say things like, if you want to hear God's voice, read the Bible out loud. Ha ha, funny, funny. That's not wrong, but it's also not completely true either. 
Because Jesus told us in John 14 to 16 that the Spirit would counsel us into truth and remind us of everything Jesus taught. So there's a component to hearing God we need to get comfortable with. Should we test what we hear by the Scripture? Absolutely. Should we still be hearing? Dang straight. We have to grow in discerning and growing sensitive to the Holy Spirit's leading. My hunch is, Holy Spirit isn't silent as counselor and helper. It may be we're not listening. Because we're not given a lot of instruction in the Scriptures on how to regarding the discerning of the Holy Spirit's voice. In fact, we're told we can know and that He will lead. And the Scriptures assume we understand how to do that because it's evident. It's often us, not God. It's often our busyness, not that it's not evident. And it's often our inability to listen and focus. It's often our loudness. It's often our isolation from fellowship. And sometimes it's often our general lack of discipline regarding spiritual things that keep us from knowing the Spirit's leading. Read Mueller's life. Good, solid Calvinist. Reading the Word of God as Scripture alone. That in long seasons of prayer, needing to feed 10,000 orphans, that God would remind him of what he needed and let him know what's coming. And sure enough, a wagon load of potatoes would show up at the front door. I need to know God like that, and so do you. And don't tell me you don't. Miss Green, in eighth grade, (laughs) God bless her, used to say, Mitchell, I need you to listen with your eyes, your ears, and your body. Anybody have a teacher tell him that? (laughs) Oh, she was so right. Spiritual listening isn't much different. Tune in with the eyes of your head and your body tuned to Jesus. Put yourself in a position to look at Scripture and read Scripture while you're seeking to hear the Lord. Don't do it in front of the game. Don't do it distracted. Tune your physical ears and your soul to sense God's movement. You've got to do this by getting quiet and settling your mind. It's just kind of natural reality. You ever try to get quiet and your brain's still telling you all the things you need to do? It takes a while. If you give in to that, that will drown out the voice of God. Just That's my practical experience. So put yourself in a position to listen also with your body. And finally, put yourself in a posture to receive. I like to listen with my hands lifted up in some manner like a child wanting to be picked up by their good daddy. And you and I can hear God and obey Him. As we learn to wait, obey, and trust God's providence. That's how as a church we'll change the world. It's what Paul did. It's what Mueller did. It's what Abraham did. It's what David did. It's what Moses did. And by the way, that's what Jesus did while on this earth. He waited, he obeyed, and he trusted God's timing, the Father's timing in all things.
We can do that too. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would move our hearts to make much of you this morning. That you would... Um, that you would move in such a way that we would hear you. And we would delight in you. Lord, I ask you to transform our thinking. I ask you to transform our feeling. Lord, this is Rome, Georgia. And I'm not informing you, I'm confessing this is a hard place to do ministry. Because we're comfortable. And that's not bad, that's good. But sometimes we we bow down to that and it rules us. And sometimes the domain of darkness casts a shadow into the kingdom of light through such things. And so Lord, I ask you not to help us not do that and be different. Lord, I pray for you to rule over the air in this room. That things that would keep us from hearing you and knowing your way and walking in it would be removed. And we would be able to hear clearly. Lord, I pray you'd call people from death to life today and pray that you would call people out of darkness into light. Paul's not a hero. Neither are we. Jesus is our hero. And we want to be like Jesus. So help us to be like Jesus and then use us for your glory. Help us to be agents of your kingdom right where you placed us.